Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, where we discuss 1,000 years of people behaving badly. I'm Ann Brannan. And I'm Michelle Butler. And today we're discussing a death by foxglove poisoning in 14th century Italy. On July 18th. 1329, Con Grande de la la Scala, boy, that one's hard, made his triumphant entry into Trevisio. The city had just surrendered to his army, which had been besieging it since July 2nd. On July 22nd, just four days later, Con Grande was dead. Natural causes or oh-so-convenient murder. <laughs> of which there was a lot in those days. Oh my point. god! Like nobody, <laughs> nobody lives to a ripe old age. No, his father had been murdered. His father had been murdered, and later his heirs got murdered. This was in. Um, he was the ruler of Verona at the time of his death, and he was a Ghibelline. The wars between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines had started in the 12th and 13th centuries. It was originally a struggle of power between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. But that actual controversy had ended, theoretically, in 1122 with the Concordant of Worms. But the rivalry between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines continued for centuries through the rest of the Italian medieval period, long past the death we're talking about. Um, And it didn't actually end until the 16th century because some other thing entirely happened. The Guelphs had supported the Pope, the Ghibellines had supported the Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, and indeed the factions at the time were called um, the Church Party and the Imperial Party. The names that we're using weren't invented till later. Uh, Congrande had inherited his Ghibelline allegiance in a city, Verona, that had shifted allegiances back and forth throughout the um, period. And he was also married to Giovanna, a descendant from of the Holy Roman um, Emperor Frederick II. Uh, he didn't have any legitimate heirs through her, although he had a bunch of illegitimate children. He had eight of them. <laughs> was it eight? I didn't count eight. them. By how many people? Do you know? Mm, I don't know that. Well, yeah, that would be nice to know. Like eight different people, four, one, you know, this. just sprinkling them everywhere yeah but none of them you know inherited the rivalry between the um, Guelphs and the Ghibellines affected the city states of northern and central Italy for hundreds of years allegiances shifting town to town city state to city state cities to city and the cities to guild to guild and then the city's allegiance everything it just was it was a very um, fluid and changeable and deadly um just mixture of forces for hundreds of years. It affected the rest of Europe since the Pope ruled over the West European Christians and the Holy Roman Empire boundaries, which, you know, moved all around and there was trade and there was the relationship with the Eastern Christians. The Byzantines were supporting the um, Ghibellines. And then Dante gets involved with this um, because Although, oddly, Dante was a Guelph. I want to know about Dante, because Congrande was, uh, besides, being a, um, besides being a war hero and all that, was also a uh, patron of the arts, not just Dante, but um, Petrarch and uh, Giotto. And he gets mentioned in Boccaccio, um, by Boccaccio in Decameron. Oh, does he? Oh, I didn't realize that. How did I miss that? 
Um, yeah, but I'm confused about Dante because Dante got thrown out of Florence, yeah, for being on the wrong side of a particular Guelph And faction. he ends up living in Congrande's household for six years from 1312 to 1318. Yeah, yeah, he lived there. I mean, it's a long time for six years. And Congrande himself is not actually very old at that point. Um, in 1312, he's only 20, 21 years old. He's born in uh, 1291. But of course, he's got to get out of the gate early since he's only going to live to be like 39. So Congrande is really, really interesting. Um, so he's born in 1291. He's the third son, but ends up in charge kind of early in life, which is really interesting, right? The older brothers, Bartimeo dies in 1304, and Albuino dies in 1311. So, and the dad... And we talked about this um, before. The dad knights him when he's only 10 years old. Knighthood now, like you can be part of the Beatles or something and get knighted. But in the 13th century, it's still very much an actual military thing. So knighting him when he's 10 years old, I just can't imagine what people thought. But he lives up to, he lives up to the dad's confidence. I mean, basically, as soon as he's the equivalent of a middle schooler, they're sending his butt off to war. You know, I can't trust mine to mow the yard. The dad, the older brother... The oldest brother, Bartomeo, and the dad both die in 1304, leaving, if you're doing the math at home, a 12-year-old going on 13 as the joint ruler of Verona with the surviving older brother, Albuino. And basically, from then on, he's getting hands-on political experience, real-life military experience. There are a great deal of it since there were so many battles. He's all the time all over the place fighting all over and just trying to take over as much of Northern Italy as they can get a hold of. And, you know, he's, I mean, what I was finding is that people thought he was basically a decent human being, you know, for a scary and effective warlord, the standard devoted to the Virgin Mary, merciful to defeated enemies. Yeah, that's what they say. I don't know. You know, that's what, that's what we're finding. But on the other hand, you're not really gonna, if you have a bad thought about him, gonna write it down. Not till after, not till after he's safely dead. So one of my favorite things about him is he's got this fancy, his fancy-sounding name, you know, Concarande, right? And it just—it's a nickname. It just means big dog, which cracks me up. He sounds like he's—he sounds like a street thug, big dog. The whole family had a dog theme going on, even though it was—it was basically a uh, unofficial second uh, emblem. So they had—they had a coat of arms, but then they also stuck dog images all over things. And then the older, the remaining older brother dies in 1311, leaving him at the ripe old age of 20, the big dog in charge of it all and he seizes his chance with both hands oh yeah he really does well and he was pretty successful yeah he's he's taken over you know there's setbacks it's not like it's not like he never has issues but he he adds territory he adds quite a lot of territory over the next 20 years roughly so how does dante fit into all this Concande actually now is best known as the, the, the patron, the supporter of Dante, right? Because Dante's got, divine, he dedicates the third part of the Divine Comedy to him. Really, you'd think it would be sort of a backhanded compliment to have Inferno dedicated to you. I thought, I wrote this and thought of you. No. So I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for Dante about this, okay? Because patronage relationships 
absolutely involve a certain amount of sucking up. It's just, it's just the nature of the thing. You know, if somebody else is paying your way, you're going to be nice to them about it. Very few people just like now in the middle ages, make their living as a writer directly. Yes. But even with all of that, Dante's sucking up is tremendous and over the top. I have, I have, I have a representative couple of quotes that are just spectacular. The outstanding praise of your magnificence, which watchful fame spreads abroad on flying wing, pulls different people in different directions so that it brings some to hope in their prosperity, casts others down in fear of destruction. The report of such fame, exceeding by far that of any present day person, as somewhat beyond the truth, I judged to be somewhat exaggerated. So I'm going to leave a little bit of like comparing him to famous people out. And there, I saw your great works, having come to Verona. I saw your beneficences and touched them. And just as I had earlier suspected excess on part of your praisers, now I know to be the excess of the deeds themselves. So basically he's saying, oh, before I got there, I figured your reputation had to be overblown. But now that I see everything you've done, I know they were ag- actually understating it. I'm just embarrassed. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just you so are even bigger than exaggerated this, things. <laughs> this, this letter from Dante is just the master class in kissing ass. It, it is. I mean, he gives evidence. He's, it's, it's like footnoted as to why he thinks this guy is spectacular. Um, there are there are scholars who don't want to dispute the authenticity of Dante's letter, and they have a number of reasons, but honestly, I think they're mostly just embarrassed. Oh, Dante! <laughs> I mean, Chaucer, right? Chaucer has to suck up to a number of people, but it's never quite this obsequious. No. No, no, it isn't. And it always, there's always this little bite to Chaucer where you're, where you can, you know, you're thinking, you, you don't need this, do you? You're totally, yeah. Chaucer, no. Yeah, Dante had ended up in um, Verona because he had had to flee Florence because he had been um, on the wrong side of a division between the Guelphs. And I was like, well, if he's a Guelph, why is he going in with um, the entire other party? But uh, he was on the side of the Guelphs that was more in league with the other party than the other side. It's like, it's just too complicated. So that's why he had, le- had to leave Florence. So he was out of Florence and um, taken in by Verona, which I guess if you were a Guelph would prove that he was just like not behaving. So, so there's that. So what happened with Big Dog was that uh, we come to we come to the um, true crime part of the podcast? Uh, he was thirty eight years old in thirteen twenty nine when he left Verona for Treviso, um, which he conquered on the eighteenth of July, and so he entered the city in triumph. Uh, he was already extremely ill, and that's according to contemporary accounts. And the whole business about where the information comes from that you know and when we get it seems important to me. So he was ill when he got to um, Treviso, and contemporary accounts say that he was ill from drinking from a polluted spring. So let us remember this. 
And he died on the 22nd of July. So that's uh, 1820 to 18 from the 18th to the 22nd. So he knows he's not well. The, the city surrenders on the 18th. And then he, he kind of does his victory lap through the city on the 22nd, but he's already sick. His body was taken to Verona and he was buried in the church of Santa Maria Antiqua. Uh, he had no legitimate heirs, so his nephews Mastino and Alberto della Scala inherited the titles. So that's, you know, the, the brief account of it, which doesn't actually look like true crime. It just looks like somebody got sick because they drank out of a polluted spring. Well, the, the polluted water story is floating around pretty quickly, but Mastino has... Con Grande's doctor executed, which I think is really interesting, right? Because there's there's a lot of waterborne diseases in the Middle Ages, just like any other time and place without good sanitation and or water purification techniques. So, you know, go with the illness story. Why are you adding poison into the mix? And he has he has him hanged, uh, Mastino does, which which just looks fishy. Yeah, although that doesn't actually show up in the accounts until later, which so that I think mm. there's some doubt as to whether it actually happened or it got added in as part of the story. There's not a lot of good information and what I'm what I was finding is is not well documented. So there's um there's a story that not only did he bump off this uncle, he bumped off another one in 1338. He gets mad at his uh, his other uncle, the bishop of Verona, who is actually a real person. I was able to find that this this guy is real. Bartolomeo was, in fact, Bishop of Verona from 1336 to 1338. The story that he, that Mastino, is the one who stabbed him to death in the street because he was mad at a perceived uh, disloyalty is only on tourist websites and a 1907 book called the story of Verona and a novel published in 1846 called the lady of Milan. So this is not well documented, but what's really interesting about those two sources is that they ascribe this murder to him, but not con grandes, which then makes you start to wonder whether, you know, you have some slippage going on in terms of the stories that he's, he's being ascribed to murders when he actually is really only suspected of one or possibly committed none. I don't know. I'm going to be real honest. I think Mastino is guilty. It's really super convenient for him that Con Grande bites it right then. Mastino was 21. He had married the year before the wife was expecting his first son um, is, is coming. Yeah. He ends up with four more sons but they, they're born after Congrande dies. And it's just the sort of time a guy might be thinking about a little bit of self-promotion by selectively pruning the family tree. And, you know, we know from his life that he has a lot of ambition. He ends up basically pushing the brother out, Alfredo, uh, not Alfredo, Alberto, and ruling by himself. Fair enough. It seems to me that it's highly likely that Congrande was murdered, but I still, I still wonder about it. But at any rate... What we know now, we do actually have scientific evidence. We dug him up. We have scientific evidence. We know what he died of. You want to talk about that? This time they actually dug him up. And we know for sure that he died of poison. And they found quite a lot of foxglove in his, in his stomach. You know, more than enough to kill somebody. Along with a couple of other things which, were, which would have been legitimate medicines at the time. I forget what they are. 
it wasn't just foxgloves. So it does look like it could have been part of a, um, a medicinal uh, dose. In other words, that, you know, a physician could well have been bribed to do it and then hung later to get him out of the way. There's that. I mean, we know that historically people use things as medicines that are also poisonous. Mercury, I'm looking at you. Right. That's true. But but not foxglove. Until the 18th century, the only thing that we know that foxglove was used for medicinally, you know, that shows up in any of the text is as part of a poultice for, for wounds in battle. I, I think it's a stupid choice. <laughs> that does not seem likely to make you better. No, but then I, you know, I don't know that we would know that people died necessarily of the foxglove since, you know, the whole poultice, the, the poultices didn't look really useful. It wouldn't have been used naturally that we know of as part of a, um, a, a, do- a medicinal dose held to try and help him get over whatever illness he had gotten by drinking from the polluted spring. And he was ill. He was, he was ill when he went into the city. It is, I mean, it's theoretically possible that he got it on accident in the water because it does look like comfrey. It, the timing, the timing is what I keep coming back to, right? It's so super convenient for Mastino after this big old victory and a whole city of mad conquered inhabitants to conveniently blame that this is when Con Grande goes. That's down. true. And although I have, I really liked the idea that he had, that what it, what he had made him ill in the polluted um, spring was foxglove and foxglove can grow by ponds and whatnot. Foxglove is dangerous. Every, every single piece of the foxglove plant is deadly to humans, to livestock, to cats and dogs. You know, it's just deadly, deadly, deadly. But it takes a lot to um, actually kill a human, a grown human. And although children have, have apparently died from drinking the water that foxglove plants are standing in, um, children don't need as much of a dose in order to die. So I think you might be right. I think I think that this. I was ho- I was hoping that I could conveniently argue that it was actually not true crime, but I think maybe it is. It's nice though to have the actual evidence that he was poisoned, because um, I mean I've I've read some I've done some other reading about historic poisonings, and you know ultimately we don't actually know somebody was accused because it's also really convenient. If there's somebody you don't like, you can accuse, and somebody else dies just at the right moment, you can say, I bet this guy poisoned him. That's a very hard accusation to refute. I will say a whole bunch of these dudes are dying young, so it looks very sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. Foxglove. Yeah, I was really delighted with the whole foxglove thing, though. Foxglove. Foxglove is this gorgeous plant. It's really, really beautiful, and it's deathly, deathly. And I went looking to, you know, to, to, I wanted to know if it could grow by ponds specifically, because I wanted to know if it had, could have gotten into the water. And I found all these, these British sites that say that our native plants, our beautiful native fox love. They said, well, don't plant it by the fish pond because it's going to kill the fish. So, you know, <laughs> I have that as evidence, but, uh, but it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And it's completely dangerous. And people can buy it and put it in their yards. And it's, it's like oleander. You know, like, why? Why put this in your yard? It's a death plant. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. At any rate, yeah, no, foxglove is, uh, fox, until recently, foxglove has been used for, um, for 
heart issues, although lately uh, they're not using digitalis as much anymore. But it was also in the um, in the 19th century, it was being used uh, in order to to cure seizures, which is why Vincent van Gogh was being given it when he was in the um, asylum. Uh, one of the symptoms that it causes is um, yellow auras around everything, which you can actually see in Starry Night. Um, it causes nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, yellow auras around everything, delirium, hallucinations, convulsions, and heart failure. It's not a nice death. At least it didn't last a week. No, or even four days, as I had thought. And he has a truly, a truly awesome tomb. He has, where he's buried, he, uh, Mastino, out of love or guilt, you pick, made sure that he had a great tomb. It's actually, um, it's not, it's not there now. There's a replica that is over the archway. His um, uh, effigy, his horseback effigy is over this tremendous archway in the church where he's buried. Yeah, up in the up in the air, not at ground level. It's really cool. So, is that the tomb that they that he was that he was in in two thousand and four when they um, dug him out to see? He's like, buried, of course, in the in the crypt part of. But the the effigy is up there above the above the doorway. So everybody has to look up to him as they come into the church. <laughs> and they put the body back. I hope. You know, he's not just Yeah, like, I mean the pictures look pretty good for seven hundred years old. He's I mean, he even still has some of his clothing. I don't know, you know, this is one of those how long does it have to be before before grave robbing becomes archaeology? Yeah. Seven hundred years appears to be okay. But if they put him back, that's especially good. I mean, and it was it wasn't just archaeology, I mean it was forensics. It was, you know, it was, it was true crime. A police investigation of really, really dead people that you can't do anything to anyway. But it's not that nobody in, in his own time thought that Mestino, you know, he was, people suspected him even in his own time, but they couldn't prove anything, of course. And his, um, one of his children, one of his sons is named Con Grande. If he hung the physician, though, that's, that's, that is kind of so suspicious. I couldn't even find what it was that the physician was accused of when he got hung. I mean, there's surely some kind of like supposed reason. But all I can find, all I could find was reference to the physician being hung, not for what. You got anything else you want to add? I don't know. I was really intrigued by him showing up in, you know, this other story that I cannot verify at all about stabbing the bishop in the street, which which I cannot find a single decent piece of information to suggest that that's true, which suggests it's, you know, it's probably an urban legend that's continuing to be passed along. But I think it's, it's interesting that that exists. Yeah. And why it got invented in the first, why, but why, why invent that at all? Just that there seems to be some kind of aura of suspicion on him in general. He's apparently um, as aggressive and abrasive as Candida, as, as Congrande himself without his charm. And the son, the son, Congrande the second is even worse. So it's possible that Mastino is catching blowback from the dislike of his kid. But Congrande rem- remains a, um, a revered or honored figure. Yeah, probably in comparison, he's awesome. Well, thank you for listening to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. Uh, check with us next time, and we'll cover um, Swain II of Denmark, who in 1157 hosted the Blood Feast of Roskilde. Oh, awesome! I'm excited about that. I've been to Roskilde.